0: Welcome to the Running Explained Podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is sleep scientist, Dr. Amy Bender. Now, not only is Dr. Bender a sleep scientist, she is a scientist who studies sleep specifically in the context of athletes and athletic performance. She is a sleep scientist for athletes. And hey, guess what? You are a runner, you are an athlete. And it was very cool for me when I was just doing some research about sleep and athletic performance, mostly in the context of not sleeping enough, and how that impacts athletic performance to see Dr. Bender's name as an author or co-author on so many of the studies that I was seeing in my research. And so I was very excited that she agreed to come on the podcast today. She is full of information, as you would expect, about sleep, like education about sleep, the things we need to know, the things that maybe we think we know about sleep, but don't actually know about sleep, how important sleep actually is, and what you can do to help get good sleep, more sleep, enough sleep in your life to be a better runner and just kind of a better, healthier person overall. Dr. Amy Bender, welcome to the show. I'm very excited to have you here.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here too.
0: So before we dive into your area of expertise, um, tell us a bit about your background, your athletic history, how you ended up as being a, a literal doctor, a PhD who studies sleep and sport.
1: Yeah. um, Well, I've been an athlete all my life. So I just played multiple sports during high school. I ended up uh, playing college basketball. um, And then after college, played around with um, some mountaineering. I did an Ironman. um, And yeah, and currently I'm, I have three kids. So it's a bit harder to do more of those crazy endurance activities, but uh, enjoy skiing and hiking and live in Calgary, which is close to the Canadian Rockies. So it's a nice area to be in. Um, And then, yeah, I just had a passion for sport and knew that I wanted to combine that with sleep because there wasn't a lot of expertise in that area. Um, So I had that kind of background passion in sport and then got into the sleep field when my aunt was a sleep technologist and she said, Come and come to my sleep lab, and I'll show you what I do. And it was just really fascinating to me to see all of the signals on the screen, you know, all of the electrodes hooked up to the scalp and the eyes and the muscle activity, and then mon- monitoring respiratory events. And it was just fascinating for me. So I literally um, called every sleep lab I could in my area ended up volunteering at a sleep lab as a sleep technologist, and then uh, ended up getting hired as a sleep technologist at a sleep research lab that was focused on um, the impact of sleep deprivation on cognitive performance. And so I was the sleep technologist there for about four years. And then I uh, felt, you know, like, I love the research, but as a sleep technologist, you can't really control what experiments you want to run, so I knew I had to get further education, so I got a master's and a PhD in experimental psychology working at that same sleep lab, and after the PhD, that's where I came to realization um, it would be nice if I could combine my passion for sport with sleep, and so I came up to Canada. Did a postdoc at University of Calgary, working with Canadian Olympic team athletes, um, including part of the athletics team as well, and working with runners, and then um, made my way towards uh, more of the mental health side. So I was the research scientist at a counseling center, but was really missing that sleep element. Um, you know, we did a few projects on the side. How could sleep? benefit mental health, but it wasn't really the focus of my role. And so that's when I ended up a year ago, almost a year ago, working for Cerebra, which is a sleep technology startup company, really trying to change the way we diagnose and treat sleep disorders. And also um, a big focus is on performance and athletic performance as well. So it was just the perfect fit for me to be at Cerebra. And so now I'm currently the director of clinical sleep science there and get to still work with athletes along the way.
0: It's nice to see that there appears to be a cultural shift in how little sleep can you possibly survive on to am I getting enough sleep and people actually paying attention to getting quality sleep and and their sleep health. Are you seeing that in your work as well?
1: Yes, I am seeing a a shift towards that direction versus the, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead kind of mentality. I think we are seeing seeing more of a shift towards uh, sleep is important. If I want to be productive, if I want to be healthy, I need to get good sleep, just like I need to exercise and I need to think about my nutrition as well. So I do see that shift. And I think, um, potentially wearables could could be related to that I think it just brings more awareness to sleep um, and so that's where I think maybe some of the shift is occurring is a lot more people are wearing sleep trackers which gets them more interested in their sleep and really potentially trying to prioritize it
0: what a real softball a question at you right now how important is sleep for your health and For your athletic performance,
1: (laughs) it's it's really important. Um, You know, sleep. In if we take one example, let's say we just take daylight saving time, where we lose an hour of sleep, we even see a lot of negative health outcomes just based on that one night. Um, No, it's not that one night that's problematic. It's kind of the chronic poor sleep leading into that one hour lost. But we see even increase in heart attacks following the daylight saving time. We see increase in accidents, uh, suicide. There's a lot of even implications just from that one hour of sleep lost. Um, And in general, in the research, you know, we do see poor sleep. So not getting enough sleep, not getting good quality sleep, having sleep disorders um, are more associated with poor cardiovascular health, diabetes, obesity, even even potentially Alzheimer's disease. So there is that relationship there And when it comes to performance too, even in normal healthy sleepers, when we sleep deprive someone of sleep, we do see decrements in performance. We see slower reaction times, we see more lapses of attention. Um, And that also translates to athletes as well. And so when we reverse that, where we get more sleep, we get more sleep, sleep extension or sleep banking. We see huge benefits on performance, especially for athletes uh, when it comes to reaction time, um, uh, sprint times, just overall performance benefits with getting more sleep.
0: I like that you mentioned the rising prevalence of wearables and trackers because one of my questions to you is... Tell us more about what happens when you sleep. And if anybody has worn a wearable device that tracks their sleep, they probably noticed that their sleep is broken into stages where they have deep sleep or lighter sleep. And depending on what you wear, you might have even more detail than that. Tell us what makes up our sleep.
1: Our sleep is primarily divided into kind of two main components. So non-REM sleep, non-rapid eye movement sleep, Uh, and REM sleep. So rapid eye movement sleep. Um, So REM sleep is actually a stage of sleep. So it's where you're dreaming, um, you know, you have those rapid eye movements, your muscles are paralyzed, so you're not acting out your dreams, um, and is involved in learning and memory processing and that kind of thing. Um, It takes up about 25% of our sleep time across the night. Uh, But we also have a non-REM sleep, which is made of three different stages. So non-REM one, which is the lightest stage of sleep, non-REM two, which takes up about 50% of our sleep time, and then non-REM three, which is the deepest stage of sleep. And so typically what you'll see with a sleep tracker would be more of the, not those specific stages, but more the light sleep, the deep sleep, and the REM sleep. Um, the accuracy of the trackers can be a problem. Um, you know, I think as I mentioned, it brings awareness to sleep and how important it is. But a lot of people get fixated on the accuracy and are troubled by the fact that oh no, it looks like I only got 10% REM sleep or 10% deep sleep, and they're very troubled by by that. But I think we do have to question the accuracy of those wearables. And what we see in the research is that those wearables are pretty good when it comes to uh, total sleep time, sleep duration, um, the time you're in bed, those kind of things. But they don't do a very good job when it comes to um, relating to those different sleep stages. They are getting better, um, but I think there's a lot more work that can be done. And um, as a part of the company I'm working for at Cerebra, we're actually trying to develop a EEG wearable device um, because sleep is measured in the brain. And when you start getting further and further away from the brain with a wearable device on the wrist or the ring, um, you know, you really aren't measuring uh, directly that brainwave activity. So again, um, yeah, it's something I think I think the technology is certainly improving um but to be cautious of interpreting those results as is
0: another reminder to not be married to whatever your watch says take it with (laughs) a little grain of salt or maybe depending on what you're wearing a, a large hunk of salt um when we talk about the different stages of sleep and there has to be a stage that is stages that are correlated with different things like you said REM sleep is when dreaming occurs I know that I've had nights of sleep where, yeah, technically I slept, but I did not wake up feeling restored or refreshed. Are there, it sounds like they're all important in different ways and different things happen in those different stages of sleep for athletics. Cause this is a running podcast for performance and for what we're trying to optimize here. Is there one stage that we really, if we're not getting enough of that stage, it could be a problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a good question. And I think it really is hard to control the distribution of these stages. Um, so, for example, deep sleep, that's where growth hormone is released. This is really important for athletes. Um, you know, so, however, typically deep sleep is uh, conserved So if deep sleep is occurring in the first half of the night, so as long as you're getting, you know, four or five hours of sleep, you're going to get most of the deep sleep that you normally would. So that wouldn't really be too big of a concern. Um, However, with a runner, for example, you know, there may be an early morning workout and it seemed plausible that you might be missing out on a lot of that REM sleep, which is important. So REM sleep, Uh, I didn't mention that non-REM to REM cycles occur in about 90 to 100 minutes. And when you go through the first uh, part of that cycle, your REM period is actually very short at the beginning of the night. But as the night goes on, the REM periods get longer and longer and longer. And so um, what we see is if you cut your sleep short, that you would likely to be missing out on a bunch of that REM sleep, and you know REM sleep is important for procedural memory. So if you're learning a new task, um, you know it, that has been linked with REM sleep. Um, but yeah, in general, I think it's more practical to kind of think about trying to get the minimum, or sorry, well try to get the minimum amount of sleep, which for an adult would be seven hours to nine hours is the recommendation. So trying to hit that minimum. And then um, also trying to improve the quality of your sleep, which uh, you know may improve some of that deep sleep in the end, may end up helping you feel more refreshed. Um, so it's not necessarily just about the quantity, it's also about the quality and potentially the timing as well. So we can dive into all those areas if you want.
0: (laughs) Let's talk about quantity first. Let's start, let's start broad and then narrow in. I tell my runners and I talk about the importance of getting enough sleep. And I say the clinical definition of sleep deprivation is getting less than seven hours of sleep a night. For some people, getting seven hours of sleep is a luxury that is like an unfathomable thing. How do we convince people that they really need to prioritize getting enough sleep?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with performance. So if you're working with an athlete, really trying to um, pull some of that literature that shows if you're getting more sleep, you're going to perform better. And this has been shown in runners as well, where um you know they've compared more of a sleep deprived state versus the normal amount of sleep they're getting versus a sleep extended uh state and they find that runners can run further when they're have more sleep their perception of the effort is is easier um you know so i think you really have to kind of talk the language depending on the person And so if we're dealing with an elite athlete, um, performance is probably the place to start. Um, You know, and it just depends on the motivation, I think, of the person themselves. Um, But yeah, drawing from some of that literature that actually has studied this is probably a good starting point.
0: And that seems to be one of the secrets of elite athletes is that they sleep. A lot. I'm not quite sure if this is one of those urban legends, but like LeBron James was getting 12 hours of sleep, 14 hours of sleep in a day, a 24 hour period when he was playing, you know, at his highest level. That's the thing. That's what allows your your body to handle all of the stress that you throw at it when you're doing these very demanding endurance and physical activities.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, it's about the recovery from both the physical demands of the sport, plus the mental demands of the sport and uh that is one of my favorite slides i have a slide of different professional athletes along the bottom and then the amount of sleep that they're getting across a 24-hour day and yeah lebron james is you know 12 hours i don't think he's sleeping that much now um and of course it'd be hard to get 12 hours in one single nighttime chunk so for him he was also part of his sleep across the 24-hour day was napping um, you know, Roger Federer, same thing, 10 to 12 hours, Michelle, we eight to 10 hours. Um, so we do see a lot of professional athletes prioritizing sleep because they know of the importance and how important it can impact their performance. Um, but there are a lot of athletes out there who aren't getting enough sleep and, um, are still in you know, still in the professional leagues and stuff like that. But I always wonder, like, what would happen if they they got more sleep? You know, how how could that impact their performance? Um, and there are there are short sleepers, naturally, people who don't need as much sleep. Uh, but when we look at that literature, it's it's less than one percent of the population. So if you think that's you, it's probably not likely.
0: For me, I, when I was in high school through college, I was a chronic undersleeper and I, I could, you know, survive on five, six hours of sleep. And that's the difference between surviving and thriving. One might be able to survive on less sleep than they really do need, but you're not going to thrive. And eventually it might catch up with you and your body will force you to get the rest that you need.
1: Yeah, and it's it's interesting because when we are sleep-deprived, we lose, uh, you know, some of that prefrontal cortex area decision-making. So our decision-making is impaired, our judgment is impaired, and what we see in the literature is that people think they're doing fine, but when we measure their performance objectively, if we're looking at a reaction time test, their performance is horrible, even though they're reporting that they're doing great. So that is something to keep in mind, too. Um, You know, you may be, oh, I'm fine on five hours, six hours. Like, it doesn't impact me. But in reality, if we were to objectively look at your performance, there would likely be, you know, decrements in there.
0: So let's talk about two things you mentioned, napping and banking sleep. So naps count, it sounds like, when you're trying to get just pure numbers in a 24-hour period. Naps count
1: yes yes so especially a lot of runners do early morning training um and it may not be possible to get to bed on time because we have uh, melatonin being released at a certain time of day and uh, you know i hear a lot where uh, uh even a college team will schedule a strength and conditioning session at seven in the morning and they just say, oh, well, the players just need to go to bed earlier. You know, they need to really prioritize sleep. But there's a certain point where your body is not ready to be sleeping. And um, so and especially in teens and adolescents, their melatonin is being released later. So um, there is a point where, you know, you do want to try and get to bed early if you are waking up early but it, you may just not be able to fall asleep because our melatonin isn't quite there yet. And so this would be an opportunity to add in a nap the following day. So if I'm, I have an early morning training scheduled, um, why not schedule in a nap for that afternoon to help recover from that training, but also be able to recover from some of that lost nighttime sleep. And uh, so napping is a huge strategy, I think, for people to take advantage of that not too many athletes are doing. You know, In our research, we found um, 80, only about 20% of Canadian national team athletes were napping at least two or more times per week. And so this is uh, definitely a strategy people can utilize to help make up for some of that lost nighttime sleep. But we also see in people who are getting enough nighttime sleep, adding even a short nap, a 20-minute nap, Um, can provide benefits to alertness and performance. So I think it's a way to make up for lost nighttime sleep, but even if you are getting decent sleep at night, it's a way to help benefit your performance for for the future. Is there such a thing as too much sleep? Uh, It's a good question. Um, There is actually a recent study looking at this and their conclusion was no. Um, in healthy, normal sleepers. um, There isn't a way to kind of get too much sleep. Uh, If we have underlying chronic conditions, diseases, comorbidities, um, we do see associations with those with more nighttime sleep potentially, um, even with mental health issues as well. And so it's more of potentially a cause of that underlying disorder and not necessarily causing that disorder. So it's a pretty complicated area that I think needs more study for sure. Um, but at this point, we, we don't think that uh, you can get too much sleep um, if you are kind of a healthy person. Uh, banking sleep.
0: I know when I talk generally about best sleep practices, go to bed and wake up at close to the same time every day, but for some people, like they they have they have to get up early on the weekdays and then mm-hmm. they sleep in on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that actually might be a strategy for getting enough sleep in total mm-hmm. in the course of the week. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's tricky because, again, like you said, we do want to keep the sleep schedule as consistent as possible. So we want to keep our bedtimes consistent, our wake times consistent, because in the research, we see the more discrepancy between free days, um, free days and work days or school days, however you want to define that, uh, the more health problems we can see. So uh, we call it social jet lag. Uh, It's the mismatch between your work days and your free days. And typically what we see is we don't want to alter that, alter those times too much, more than two hours. And that's where we start to see um, negative impacts on mental health. We see negative impacts on performance, like academic performance, for example, Um, you know, and just more errors and um, accidents and those kind of things. Um, So we, we would like to keep that midpoint of sleep, so if I go to bed at midnight, I wake up at 8 a.m., the midpoint of my sleep is 4 a.m., uh, we don't want to alter that by more than two hours on the weekends, for example. So that's something for people to keep in mind. Um, we don't want to sleep in till noon on the weekends if I'm getting up at 6.30 a.m. on the weekdays because our brain and our body just does, don't know when we should be awake and when we should be asleep. Uh, so it starts to create some of those health issues. Um, but sleeping in an hour on the weekend, an hour and a half, um, Going to bed early, I I don't see that as being too problematic. And I think that's a way you can get more sleep, um, extend your sleep somewhat on the weekends if possible, or add in a nap, as we mentioned, maybe a longer 90-minute nap in the afternoon uh, to help make up for some of that lost um, nighttime sleep and a way to get more sleep across the week. So we talked about
0: quantity. Now let's talk about quality. Beyond the different stages, it seems like not all sleep is created equal. And I mentioned my experience of waking up and like, yeah, I slept for eight hours, but I don't feel very refreshed.
1: Quality matters. Quality does matter. Quality matters a lot. And I'm really excited uh, at Cerebro because we're we're studying quality on a much more objective level, looking at brainwave activity. Um, So I don't think... Stages is where we need to go with this. I think stages sleep staging was developed in the 1960s, and that's where people are hanging their hats right now. They're concerned about the 10% deep sleep that they're getting. But um, I think in the future, we're going to go way beyond sleep stages. We're going to have a better marker of sleep quality, which is what we're developing right now. Um, and so quality, I think... Uh, there's a bit of a debate, I would say, between sleep scientists and, you know, can we get better quality sleep that would then allow us to sleep less? I'm kind of in that, in that camp a little bit. Um, There are a lot of sleep scientists that would disagree with me. They say, you know, no, we need, we have a set sleep need. We need to fulfill that need. And, um, you know, we won't be able to get rid of that need by getting better quality sleep. So there's a bit of a debate. Um, but we do see, especially with, uh, when we go back to the consistency, when we're comparing two different groups that are getting the same amount of sleep, um, those who are more consistent have better quality sleep and actually perform better, even though both groups are getting the same amount of sleep. So, um, It is is something to keep in mind and improving sleep quality could be things like limiting your caffeine intake. So obviously if I'm going to take a a pre-workout at 6 p.m. that has a ton of caffeine in it, that's going to impact my sleep quality at night. So we have to be concerned about those things. We have to be concerned about um, looking at bright screens right before bedtime because that could impact our sleep quality And, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of light getting lots of light in the morning can help improve our sleep quality at night. So there's a lot of different things we can do to improve our sleep quality. Alcohol is another one, um, which can, which can kill our sleep quality at night. So there's a lot of things, you know, we should think about that minimum quality of sleep that we need. Plus in addition, what strategies can we take to improve our sleep quality as well, I think is really important.
0: That's a really interesting theory about basically having a, a quality deprivation rather than a quantity deprivation.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. Um, and I think more research will start to uncover that a bit more in the future.
0: Because... Time is one of the most precious commodities that we have. And understandably, the less the sleep that we need, the more that we can spend our time doing other things, running, parenting, teaching, learning, hanging out with friends or family. And I understand that. And I think that's where a lot of people get caught up in the trap of deprioritizing sleep because there are so many other things that are important to them that they want to accomplish in their day. And they think, well, I mean, you know, what's an hour or two for sleep here and there. And I, I get it. Right. If I didn't have to sleep eight hours a night, I could probably do a lot more stuff, but we're not quite there yet. It sounds like.
1: No, no. And there, there is, there are people out there. It's like the 5am club, you know, where it's like, if you want to get things done, you have to get up early and start your day at 5am. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, okay, what time are you going to bed? And if you're only getting six hours of sleep, sure you may be checking things off your to-do list but the quality of that is not going to be as good and in the end you know if you're continually doing that time and time again what are the impacts on your overall health down the road as well so um yeah i think it is challenging because sleep is kind of the first thing to go when we get busy but uh, i think having people understand that if you want to be healthy, if you want to perform well to prioritize sleep is, is going to be key. You mentioned the
0: different timing of melatonin release in teenagers versus adults. And I know people who are morning people who just wake up at naturally at five thirty AM and they go to bed early, but they wake up early. I know some people who are naturally night owls. Is that real? Are there some people who are just naturally early risers or naturally you know late night people
1: absolutely uh what we see in general kind of the general patterns are uh childhood we're more of that early bird type uh when we get to the teenage years and the adolescence and early adulthood uh, we see a shift more towards eveningness so about age 19 20 we kind of see that peak in eveningness where melatonin is, is being shifted later And then once we get into our 50s and 60s, we kind of revert back more to that early bird type. But there's a lot of individual variability within there. So we might have an adult, a 40-year-old, who's more of a night owl, where their melatonin is being released later. It's called delayed sleep phase syndrome. Um, So we do see pockets of individuals who are more of that evening type, extreme evening type. Versus a more early bird type as well, and then usually about seventy percent of us kind of fall in between those two extremes um, and so yeah, it's something um, to optimize if you if you have that flexibility if you are an evening type, you know do you have the flexibility with your job or work schedule where you can schedule things a bit later, go to bed later, wake up later because it's more in line with your biology. Um, or even an early bird, same same kind of an idea. Can you go to bed earlier, wake up earlier, um, and still optimize some of those activities? Uh, a lot of time, that's not the case. And we do see evening types really struggling with our current society where you know we need to be ready to go at 8.30 AM, for example. And so there are some strategies that they can take in order to help shift their rhythm to a more earlier time. So things like getting lots of light in the morning will help shift that circadian rhythm earlier, um, blocking light at night, so wearing blue light blocking glasses potentially potentially utilizing melatonin um, and will help bring those rhythms a bit back to normal but it's 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 challenging because they have to be consistent with that and um, you know and it's difficult because our society doesn't typically accommodate for our evening types.
0: I was going to ask as a follow-up, you know, should somebody lean into that with their schedule? Talk about optimizing your, you know, training around your menstrual cycle. We talk about optimizing this around the, that. And if you, it sounds like if you have the ability to lean into your natural preference when it comes to your schedule, that might be better, but societal expectations for getting up at 630 every morning might not allow you to actually accomplish that.
1: Mm -hmm. If they have the flexibility, absolutely, you should take advantage of that. Um, And even when we think about early birds and night owls, there's been a couple of studies showing that uh, peak performance is different between these individuals too. So you could optimize even your training schedules. Um, So for example, for an evening type, they found that more of that A late afternoon, early evening, versus the morning type was more, you know, 10 10 a.m. more in the morning was kind of their peak performance. So it could definitely be optimized um, if you have that flexibility. A lot of times we don't.
0: And even not having the schedule flexibility, but talking about races, most start times are bright and early. So even if you are a night owl, training in a way where you are you know, training in the morning is going to help you train for your race that starts in the morning.
1: Yeah, I think that there could be um, potentially taking advantage of that peak, that natural peak performance. So, training could be included in the afternoon for the first, you know, months of training. And then as we approach the race, we may want to then start shifting the rhythms earlier and earlier. Um, but, yeah, I, there's a balance, and I don't think we know the true answer, but I think that in the three weeks before, maybe the month before the actual event, you could start kind of shifting things early and earlier, so that by the time the race comes along, you know you'll be you'll be ready to go.
0: It sounds like it'd be probably easier to do it the other way if you have an evening race, which is your big goal race in an early bird, you know, train mostly in the morning, but get used to at least doing something in the evening. So you're not going into this blind. You're like, I've never, never gone for a run at 6 PM before until race day.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, there's this interesting case study that came out recently where they were, um, it was an endurance. I, it was one person. So we have to kind of take that with caution, but it was one person endurance athlete who knew they were going to be sleep deprived during the actual event. And so I believe it was once a week, they um, purposefully were sleep deprived and training during that situation. Um, I think for me, and and they found that subjective, there wasn't like an objective measure of performance, but they found subjectively that they um, felt fine during that time. But I always go back to the whole, you know, prefrontal cortex, sleep deprivation. Like, is that the reason why they're feeling fine? Um, So this I'm going to dive deeper into this case study because I want to I want to check it out. Um, But currently, I kind of disagree with their conclusions that that this strategy should be done. I think um, definitely people should train according to the conditions of the race. But I probably wouldn't do that, you know, once a week. Like, I don't think that's going to provide all this extra benefit. I might try it one or two times in the month prior um, so that I'm well rested going into that race, which is going to help benefit the performance more than if um, I'm practicing to be sleep deprived in in the, you know, four days before the race.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't know that of any performance benefit of training in a sleep-deprived state, except for like you said, maybe that once or twice where you get the experience Mm -hmm. of doing something in a sleep-deprived state. But like it's not gonna make you perform better and it's gonna make your recovery that Mm -hmm. much more challenging. Yes. What are the criteria for when somebody has a sleep disorder? I know we've all had sleepless nights here or there. I know that, you know, in a perfect world we'd sleep well every night, but we don't. But when somebody actually is developing a sleep disorder, what does that look like? What are the criteria?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good question because we it is normal to have a poor night's sleep here or there. And I think we need to normalize that. We can't just get perfect sleep every single night. Um, so that but when it becomes a sleep disorder, we really need to watch out for that. And what we see with insomnia, so trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, waking up too early, uh, we start to see if that's occurring three days a week, where you're, it's taking 60 minutes to fall asleep, and it's been occurring for three months or more. We're getting into that clinical diagnosis of insomnia, and. Also, there's an element of it's impacting your daily living. For example, like you're fatigued during the day or you're tired. Um, that's where we would want to certainly, and probably not wait three months, but um, if this is happening for a month and three days a week, you have this issue, you want to get it checked out by a sleep professional. And the gold standard treatment for insomnia right now is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So it's kind of changing your thoughts and behaviors around sleep. Um, and, and just changing your habits, for example, it, just changing like, oh, I'm going to cut out caffeine or I'm going to cut out alcohol um, is probably not enough in that situation. So we definitely want to get it checked out by a sleep professional. And there's Tons of different online programs as well that people can take advantage if, if there's not a sleep behavioral specialist in their area. The other common sleep disorder is obstructive sleep apnea. So if someone is stopping breathing during the night, um, let's say they're snoring and you notice your partner like stops breathing or kind of snorts um, at the end of the snore, that could be a potential for sleep apnea. Um, which is a very debilitating disorder. It can be fixed with uh, CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. So a mask, a lot of people don't like that. Um, So there are oral appliances that they can use for more of the mild sleep apnea. There's, um, it's called Excite OSA, where you can get neuromuscular stimulation of the tongue to open the airway. So there's a lot of different treatment um, pathways that people can take for that. But if someone, like if you notice your partner stop breathing, or if someone notices you stop breathing, if you're snoring a lot, if you are just really tired during the day, need a lot of caffeine to get you through that, uh, we would definitely want to get that checked out by a sleep professional. So go into a sleep lab. Um, get that checked out and part of our technology too is bringing the sleep lab into the home so they're also developing new technology to kind of do that test in the home as well which is what we're doing at Cerebra but um, those are kind of the two main um, things that people would want to get checked out from the sleep disorder but in general you know if you are struggling with sleep you're not sure why Um, It's worth going to see a sleep professional.
0: How often does insomnia occur as a standalone condition or occur, you know, in conjunction with other underlying physical or mental health issues?
1: Uh, Typically, about 15% of the population are suffering from insomnia, um, and so there is a really big relationship between sleep disturbances and mental health problems. So um, there can be a huge overlap. Something like ninety five percent of mental health problems also have a sleep disturbance component to it. Um, and so that's why I was really interested in how can we optimize sleep to improve mental health. Um, you know, so that is definitely kind of an up-and-coming area as well, is um, since a lot of these mental health problems have a sleep disturbance component, if we fix that sleep disturbance, does it then improve the mental health? And we do find that to be the case.
0: So if anybody's listening to this and saying like, okay, this all makes sense. I know I need to get more sleep, but I just really have trouble falling asleep some nights before they go ahead and invest time and resources. I know you're in Canada and the US getting into a sleep lab is probably a a pricey (laughs) uh, venture and somebody who might want to try some at-home solutions first. You've talked about this through the episode a a bit. How do we optimize our nighttime routine or best practices for making sure that we are getting good quality sleep?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we haven't talked uh, about uh, the pre-sleep routine which is important and also the sleep environment Uh, so the pre-sleep routine it helps just prepare your brain and your body for sleep and so usually about an hour before bed we want to put away those electronic devices we want to um, start doing relaxing activities so reading a paper book stretching taking a warm bath or shower has been shown to help you fall asleep quicker writing a to-do list right before bedtime helps offload some of those thoughts off of your mind. Um, and even just stress, man- it sounds easy, stress management throughout the day, but uh, a lot of times, you know, we have a hard time shutting our brain off at night. And so what can we do during the day to help um, mitigate that? And, you know, obviously exercise is important for that. Maybe even doing a worry journal during the day if you're more of that uh, anxious type. Um, doing more of a worry journal will help kind of get some of those worries off of your mind. Uh, the to do list. And then also breathing techniques as well. So, in progressive muscle relaxation and the four, seven, eight breathing technique, which I really like, where you breathe in for four seconds, you hold your breath for seven, you breathe out for eight, and you repeat that four times. Um, So you're breathing out longer than you're breathing in, which helps activate the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, So having some of those breathing techniques in your back pocket and also even cognitive techniques. So for me, I'll do the cognitive shuffle. If I'm having a hard time falling asleep, I will think of a word like bedtime. Imagine all the objects that I can that start with B. So ball, baby, bus, banana. When you can't imagine any more objects, you move on to the next letter: E, eagle, egg, ear, and you just kind of keep going through each of the letters, and hopefully you'll be sound asleep by the time you complete the letter. I've also done that with my kids where I think of a color like red, and I have them imagine, you know, all the objects that they can think of, starting with red, and even, you know, even like a red sweater or a red table, um, those kind of things. And those can be helpful to really kind of take your mind off of "Ah, I'm so mad I'm awake right now Uh, it occupies your mind in a way that's not too challenging but it also kind of simulates what we do when we fall asleep which is kind of start to imagine some of these objects so that's kind of the purpose for that and I'll use that in the middle of the night if I wake up or let's say one of my kids wakes me up in the middle of the night I'm having a hard time falling asleep I'll start kind of a routine where I'll do the breathing technique, the four seven, eight. I'll move on to the cognitive shuffle. And if I'm at the end of the cognitive shuffle and I'm still awake, I'll get up out of bed and only return back to bed when I'm sleepy. So that's another important element is we don't want to be laying in bed for long periods of time awake because then we start to associate our bed with being awake. And so if it's been around 20 minutes, you know, you don't want to stare at the clock But um, get up out of bed and then only return back to bed when you're sleepy. So that's uh, an important element for that pre sleep routine, which I think can really help you uh, fall asleep quicker, but also improve the sleep quality as well. Um, And then when it comes to the sleep environment, this is an area I think where all of us can improve, and even myself as a sleep scientist. It wasn't until I stayed at a cabin in um, Golden, BC, where it was completely dark, there was no noise, it was cool, like it was an amazing environment. And I realized right then, oh, wow, this is such a unique environment. And my environment at home is nothing like this. So I need to do some work in order to make my sleep environment at home Great, and so what I did was I ended up getting blackout blinds. I got blackout shades. I um, I was wearing an eye mask at the time, but you know light can come through that as well, so that's why I invested in some of those blackout blinds, um, and then got earplugs. And you know, so really trying to create a good sleep environment will provide benefits night after night after night. You know, so it's like a one-time investment that can really go a long way in your future sleep quality.
0: Two things I wanted to ask about that I feel like I'm I'm seeing a lot of marketing around are meditation or mindfulness apps, mostly. My meditation or mindfulness practices and white noise machines. What are your thoughts on those two things for sleep?
1: The meditation mindfulness, I think those can be a good strategy. Um, and one of the studies I read actually that meditating in the morning actually provided better sleep quality. So you may want to play around with the timing of that. Um, but there's a lot of like nighttime meditations practices. I think, I think those are all, are all good. Um, and just again, play around with the timing and then the white noise machine can be um kind of a personal preference i think they're beneficial if they're blocking out a lot of the outside noise so if you're in a noisy area on a busy street um, those could be useful um, but i would argue probably that earplugs would do a better job just because when we're asleep we're kind of we can be paying attention to some of these noises and and i wonder whether a white noise machine if, if that really could, um, you know, if your mind can be a little bit more awake by having that noise on continuously. And so I would say for infants and babies, you know, go for it because you're not going to put earplugs in them, obviously. Um, but if you have the ability to wear earplugs, uh, even just some foam ones, you know, if you can find the right, you might need to try out a few different types. Um, those could be beneficial. I have a set of earplugs that they're called Quieton, and they're noise-canceling earplugs. Um, and they're they're not like the Bose, where um, is a different type of noise canceling. It it does it's supposed to be healthy for healthier for you. Um, they're really expensive, but uh, the company actually sent me a sample, and I really really like them um and i find that they stay in and so i think a little bit of testing with some of these products uh could be helpful for people
0: i was so i have a a white noise machine and i live in the suburbs it's not very loud around here and i came across a study which basically described as you said that it might be the white noise might basically keep our nerves and engaged through the night which is not what we want to have happen and I thought well that's really interesting and I started reading some more studies and like you said it does appear to be most effective for people who are in noisy environments like white noise machines are very beneficial for people in the ICU and I'm thinking Mm -hmm. well yeah I would I would hope so that seems like a perfect situation for a white noise machine but if you live in the very nice quiet suburbs it might actually not be what you're looking for for a sleep solution.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah yeah and and, you know, there's not a definitive answer on this, I would say. Um, so, more research needs to be done. But it is something to kind of keep in mind like maybe try without the white noise machine and try earplugs instead and see if you feel like you're sleeping better.
0: Lastly, I do know a lot of people, for whatever is going on in their life, they are not getting either uninterrupted sleep or their sleep cycles are, um, you know, they have kids, they're waking up multiple times, maybe they have babies or just young kids or, you know, or they have dogs or they have a job that requires them to kind Mm -hmm. of be on call at all times of night. What advice do you have for people who are listening to all this and going, yeah, I get it. Like, look, I wish I could get eight (laughs) hours of sleep uninterrupted too, but like, (laughs) Hey, my kid had the flu through, you know, five days in a row and I got four hours of sleep total. What can they do to get mm-hmm. the best quality or quantity of sleep possible in this specific time of their lives?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It is challenging. And, um, you know, we don't want to stress too much that if you don't get enough sleep, you're going to die early or anything like that, because there are situations where you have young kids and you're not going to get you're going to be interrupted with your sleep multiple times per night um so my my advice in those situations is can I add a nap can we add in naps in this situation and even for myself if I get a poor night's sleep um you know I might look at adding a nap during my lunch see if I can get a 10-15 minute nap to help mitigate the poor sleep that I got the night before so I highly recommend naps in that situation and it doesn't have to be an extravagant you know 90 minute full sleep cycle nap even even just a 10 minute can help kind of push you through the day and get you through through a lot of that tiredness that's occurring and also you know naps can can help supplement some of that lost nighttime sleep so i would recommend highly recommend naps in in that instance Um, one study actually found that uh, it takes six years to get back to your pre-pregnancy levels when it comes to sleep. So sleep and children like sleep disruption with children is a real thing. Um, You know, so it is, it is challenging during that time. And I have three kids and my oldest is now is now four. So I'm getting to that point where my sleep is not as interrupted. You know, I'm able to wear earplugs because I don't need to be listening for a baby, waking up, and those kind of things. Um, So it is challenging for sure, but I would say, uh, can you add in that little nap to help in that situation?
0: And lastly, because this is, like I said, a running focus podcast, it's also normal to need more sleep when you're doing more intense forms of training. It's If you're going through a marathon training cycle, you're probably going to need more sleep than when you're in your off season.
1: Absolutely. Yes, we we do believe that the higher the training load, the more sleep that you're going to need to recover from that. And I noticed that in my Ironman myself, you know, after that activity, I was sleeping like two weeks, 10 hours a night um, to help recover from that. So absolutely, as your training load increases, you know, can you be getting more sleep to help make up some of that recovery?
0: I saw something online which I thought was probably not very scientifically accurate, but a good illustration of this is that for every number of miles you run or whatever it is that you do per week, you should add that many minutes to your sleep each night. So if you're running 45, or you're running 45 miles a week, you should try to get an extra 45 minutes of sleep a night. and I think that's probably just kind of a cute trite way to say, hey, run more, sleep more, but I like it.
1: That's interesting. Oh yeah, I don't I mean it's a good it's a good way to think about it for sure. Um, it would be kind of a cool study to run. W- would that actually correlate out to more miles, more more sleep? But um, definitely a way for you to kind of, think about, okay, I'm increasing my mileage here. Um, Now I need to increase my sleep.
0: Yeah. I actually, I posted something about that months ago and somebody said, where did you find that research? And I was like, oh, (laughs) buddy, this is, this is basically metaphorical. Come on. (laughs) Run more, sleep more. (laughs) Dr. Bender, thank you so much for your time. I sleep is one of those things that I get so many questions about, and I hope this has been very enlightening for the listeners to apply some of the things they've learned to their own lives and help sleep more, sleep better, um, or when when they're out of that young children phase, get back to sleeping, you know, consecutive hours in a night. Um, what is there anything exciting that you're working on right now in your research?
1: Yeah. Um, so at Cerebra, we're working on um, looking at that sleep quality metric. We call it ORP. And we are um, we just completed a study with 20 participants um, doing 20 nights. So bringing that in-lab technology into the home and studying their sleep with EEG. And we're really excited to dive into that because we tracked Uh, different lifestyle factors, so how much they're exercising, the timing of that exercise, when they're drinking caffeine, when they're drinking alcohol, and we really want to see do some of these lifestyle factors impact sleep quality on a much more fine-grained level using our metric, Um, so we're really excited to look into that and also see how variable is sleep quality across these 20 nights? Is it pretty stable within individuals or does it vary within even my own self from night to night? And how do some of these lifestyle factors impact sleep quality? Um, So I'm really excited about that to dive into that. Area. That sounds
0: fascinating. That is very cool. I
1: hope you'll keep us
0: updated. I know you're on Instagram, but you're also, if people are interested in reading any of your papers, you are published. And I know I, you have published many uh, or co-authored many papers that are available um, on PubMed or other resources for finding published peer-reviewed work. Um, and, and do you, and you travel? sounds like you travel regularly and present um, for your job as well
1: i do yeah i'm upcoming coming coming up um, in a few months i'm going to be traveling to rome for the world sleep meeting um i travel a lot for training different sites as well um but yeah i i I was in monaco um presenting at the ioc prevention conference so that was exciting um but yeah people can check me out on uh, i'm at sleep for sport on twitter and instagram i also have a website website uh, sleepintowin.com. Um, so people can find some information on there. I'm still working on being regular and updating that, but people could check that out as well. Um, yeah. And that's where you can find me.
0: And all that will be linked in the show notes. so You can find Dr. Bender and see what she's up to and follow more of her work as it comes out. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I know I learned a lot today and thank you for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. And and maybe we can do a part two down the road.
0: Yes, with what you've learned. I, I'm really excited about what you're doing at Cerebra.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.